0: Last week, we looked at the first half of Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus. Somewhere in or near Jerusalem, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night because he obviously in some way felt compelled to learn more about him. I hope I hope that's the case for at least some of you this morning, that you've come to learn of Jesus because in some way you feel compelled to learn just a little more. I think Nicodemus got way more than he bargained for. Upon first meeting Jesus, Nicodemus gives him some pleasantries. You know, we know that you've come from God because of the great works that you've done. And and I don't know if he was expecting Jesus to say, oh yeah, and you know, good work Nicodemus on getting your PhD in Hebrew theology. Jesus didn't do any of that. He cut right through All of the pleasantries and spoke to Nicodemus personally as a man. You, Nicodemus, need to be born again. Nicodemus came, he's like, Well, we believe this about you. And Jesus is like, Never mind we, you, Nicodemus, personally. And that's how the Lord deals with us, doesn't he? We can try to hide within our group, but when we encounter Christ, he looks us in the eyes and says, You, this is what you need. Never mind. The group you're in, the tribe you're in. What about you? What about your heart? Where is it? So Jesus cuts through all of that. And in just a few words, he flips the entire world of Nicodemus on its head. Firstly, Jesus removes Nicodemus' anonymity in just being part of a bigger group namely the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. Jesus is like, I don't care about whether you're a Pharisee or part of the Sanhedrin. What about you? And then he removes Nicodemus' reliance on his Jewish birth to see the kingdom of God. Unless a man, not unless a Gentile or unless a Jew, unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. And finally he removes Nicodemus understanding that the kingdom of God could somehow be gained little by little. A deception that many of us have embraced. That somehow we can gain the kingdom of God bit by bit, keeping the law a little more today than we did yesterday, little by little, and eventually we'll have enough of it that we'll understand it. And Jesus flips it all on its head with a few words. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Nicodemus, You must be born again. So we finished the message last week with Nicodemus already reeling from the teaching of Jesus. Poor Nicodemus, we left him like that for a whole week. We're picking up today in verse 9 of chapter 3 with a question Nicodemus is asking because Jesus has told him, you must be born again. And the spirit does what the spirit's going to do. You have no control of it. I don't care if you're a Pharisee or Sanhedrin. God is going to do what God is going to do. So there's poor Nicodemus. And so let's pick up our reading. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, the word of God. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved." He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is one of the most influential and powerful passages of scripture in all the Bible, and we're so grateful for it. But Lord, sometimes words that are familiar familiar to us, we can skim over them and not wrestle with God to understand what you're trying to teach us. And I pray that this morning we would not be like this, that we would submit to the teaching of the Spirit of God as he reveals the word to us, and that we would take this truth and that we would live it. We thank you for the power to do this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How can these things be? Poor Nicodemus. Flipped on his head. Everything he's ever known from the time he was a youngster vanished. Now what? Nicodemus has just heard that that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And the spirit is not subject to any man. Like the wind... Men do not know where it comes from or where it is going. We cannot see it. But what we do see are the effects of the wind. Nicodemus, being a Pharisee and part of the ruling class called the Sanhedrin, has been led to believe that they controlled the religious and spiritual lives of the people. Sound familiar? Jesus tells Nicodemus that he can no more control the wind than the spirit. This leads to this question, seemingly born by frustration at being unable to understand by Nicodemus, how can these things be? He, it, it seems like he's more crying out in desperation than seeking for an answer, although he is seeking for an answer. And Jesus, and this seems harsh, it's like, you don't know? You don't know? In verse 10, Jesus really presses Nicodemus. Are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not know these things? I think you and I need to try to put ourselves in Nicodemus' position here, just for a moment, if we can. You and I, today, have the entire New Testament, all the words of Jesus and Paul and other apostles, we have 2,000 years nearly of church hindsight to inform our understanding of being, what it means to be born again, and the workings of the Spirit of God. What did Nicodemus have at this moment with this encounter with Christ? He had the Old Testament scriptures from Moses to the minor prophets. How many of us, don't put up your hands, do you suppose would come up with the teaching of the new birth of? given only the Old Testament scriptures, if that's what we had? Oh, we might be able to now. But what if we had only what Nicodemus had? And yet, that is what Christ expected of Nicodemus. You're the teacher of Israel and you don't know? From the Old Testament scriptures, Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel should have been instructing the people in the working of the Spirit of God to bring about new life apart from the works of the law. With our benefit of hindsight, where would you and I look for these ideas in the Old Testament? Perhaps Psalm 51, verse 10. King David has sinned grievously, adultery, and murder, and he's pleading to God for forgiveness, and he writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Or maybe we would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Moses is instructing the people of Israel to return to the Lord God when they are scattered by his judgment. And he writes, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Or maybe Ezekiel chapter 11 verses 19 and 20. Then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes. And keep my judgments and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. In all these scriptures, we see God using that which is physical, like the tablets of stone and even circumcision, to teach the people that these are types and shadows of the real transformation which would take place at the new birth. When God's law is written on hearts of flesh, and hearts are circumcised, that people may love the Lord their God in sincerity and truth, and thus we hearken back to Jesus' words a few moments earlier, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit, and Nicodemus should have known the difference. Jesus in the next several verses drives this idea home of the contrast between flesh and spirit, the material and the immaterial, the shadows and the reality, the types and the fulfillment, earthly things and heavenly things. Let's look at verse 11 for just a moment. Jesus says, most assuredly, Amen, Amen. Truly, truly. That's that word repeated. I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you, plural, you guys, you Israel, you teachers, do not receive our witness. Remember last week when Nicodemus first approached Jesus? He presented himself to the Lord as we, as a representative of a larger group of people. And I told you at that time, if you were here, file that little piece of information away in your brain because it's going to become important later. And I trust all of you did that. Put up your hand if you didn't. No, I... In verse 11, Jesus flips the script back on Nicodemus. Now Jesus is the representative speaking for a group Who is this we Jesus is talking about? There have been a few different explanations, but given the total context of John's gospel in general and Christ's conversation with Nicodemus in particular, I think Jesus is speaking of nothing other than the Holy Trinity here. It shows some striking similarities to an account we find way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It is the sixth day of creation. And God has just created all the beasts of the land, and he has one more work to accomplish. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I said it before, I'll say it again. You thought that creeps only lived in 2023. No, there's lots of creeps right from the beginning. So be aware. God gives us a little more detail over in chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The creation account in Genesis teaches clearly that there is one God. It's the whole purpose of the creation account, that there is one God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and yet this one God says, let us create man in our image, somehow within the oneness, the one essence which is God There is a plurality of some sort. The New Testament, of course, sorts this out for us by revealing that the Creator, the true God of Israel, although He is one, exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal. I'm not going to get into the complexities of the Trinitarian understanding of God that Christians have hammered out over the centuries more than just this, but I think this is the we of which Jesus is speaking in verse 11. Notice in Genesis as well that we are seeing the uniting of the heavenly and the earthly. Man is made of the dust of the ground, physical stuff, but God breathes the breath of life, neshama, the spirit into him. We have this combination of the dust and the spirit, the physical and the non-physical, the material and the immaterial, exactly what Christ is trying to teach to Nicodemus. If you are not yet convinced of the purposefulness of Christ's words here, Jesus goes on to use the word witness at the end of, the, of verse 11, martyrio, we get our word martyr from it. Why is this important? Well, it's one of John's favorite words to use in all of his writings. So let's compare this to some other passages in this very book. John chapter 5, over a few pages, verses 36 and the first half of 37. Jesus speaking here, but I have a greater witness than John's. For the work which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has borne witness of me. A few more pages over. John chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So I'm quite convinced that verse 11, when Jesus says we, he's talking of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit bearing witness to the truth of Christ. This makes verse 12 pretty self-explanatory then. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And the answer, of course, is you won't. You won't. Verse 13 is one of those passages that is notoriously difficult to translate from Greek to English. And translators have wrestled with it, trying to draw the correct sense out of it. The idea is, and I'm not a translator, but I just, just for clarity purposes... The idea is something like this. No one ascends or descends between heaven and earth except the Son of Man because his home is in heaven. Something like that. Jesus in this verse is declaring himself once again to be the Son of Man. And this is his favorite title for himself. He uses it all through the Gospels. And he is making direct reference to Daniel chapter 7. Let's just read a couple verses from Daniel chapter 7 so that we get uh, a picture of Christ's self-understanding. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel speaking. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Where did he come to? He came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. That's Jesus self understanding. Jesus is making it abundantly clear that he alone can speak authoritatively about things in heaven. And then he goes on to give this very strange reference to the Old Testament. The bronze serpent, he brings up. The story of the bronze serpent. In verses 14 and 15 of today's text, Jesus points Nicodemus to an Old Testament text. A text actually written by Moses as a powerful example of this dualism or relationship between the flesh and the spirit, the material and the immaterial. And the example Jesus gives points Nicodemus to the pinnacle of God's redemptive plan, the coming crucifixion that Christ would endure at Calvary. The text Jesus points to is found in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. So let's just read that short passage. Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4 through verse 9. Then they, the people of Israel, journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food And no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. Wow. There's the state of the unbelieving heart. There is no food and there is no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread that comes down from the gracious hand of heaven. We hate it. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. But that isn't what God did, is it? So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Why would Jesus use this particular story? Why would Jesus draw some sort of parallel between himself, the son of man, and a serpent? I don't know about you, but this troubles me. And it ought to, I think. In the Bible, serpents are never something that are good or wholesome. However, Moses' serpent in Numbers 21 was made of bronze. And bronze is a metal associated with trial and judgment in the Bible. Because bronze is made using very hot fire. So a bronze serpent speaks of sin, but it speaks of sin judged. Behind the broad bronze serpent, hidden, there is an invisible reality that when you looked at it, it had the power to give healing. And that invisible reality was the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive sins. And as difficult as it is for us, or at least for me, maybe you're better at this than I am, for me to wrap my mind around, we have to trust the inspired words of the Apostle Paul when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, Now then, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Those are miraculous words. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, to be that bronze serpent, the judgment of God upon all sin. It's it's, it's mind-boggling. So when we look at Jesus lifted up on that cross, we should see our sin being judged there. Every sin we've ever committed laid on Jesus Christ and judged by God in him. This is an act of faith, trust in Christ. We need do nothing, just like the children of Israel could do nothing but look. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22 reads, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Many believe that verse 15 of our text ends the discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Others think that Jesus continues to speak to Nicodemus right through to verse 21. Regardless, it doesn't really matter which side of that argument you take. These are the inspired words of Scripture either way. Let's talk about eternal life. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. John 3, 16 is probably the most famous verse in the Bible. All of you either have it memorized or should have it memorized. And I need to say this to begin with. I have heard with my own ears sermons preached by well-meaning people say things like, the world doesn't mean the world in John 3.16. I have heard sermons preached by well-meaning men that say, Whosoever doesn't really mean whosoever. And I have heard the opposite end of the spectrum. Sermons preached by, I suspect, well-meaning men that say everlasting doesn't really mean everlasting. So this morning, here's my encouragement to you. Let's let the text say what the text says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Does it get any more plain than that? If we need to twist the words of this verse to fit our preconceived notion of what God thinks about salvation, I think we need to reroute our thinking and line it up with the truth of scripture. John 3.16 is a powerful, succinct declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thousands and maybe millions of sermons have been preached on this verse alone. There is nothing that I can say this morning that will add to this great body of knowledge. But I will say this, though, by, simply by way of reminder. Because I want no one to leave this building this morning... Without having trusted Christ, God so loved the world. In John's writings, all of them, the world is generally seen in a very negative light. It is often contrasted with the kingdom of God, the rulership of God. Here we read that God loves the world anyway. Paul writes, In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You and I were sinners. We were enemies of God. We were hostile toward God and toward Jesus Christ. And yet, he still loved us so much that he was willing to send his son to die so that we might be reconciled to God. In Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 36, Jesus said these words, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But, here's how we reflect the nature of God. Love your enemies. Do good. And lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Let's talk a little bit about condemnation and salvation. Christ brings it up in this passage, condemnation and salvation. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He left that to the people of the church. That's a joke. Don't take that seriously. It's not your job. Jesus Christ had the power and authority to condemn the world if he so chose. We do not. Instead, though, He chose to bring a message of rescue, deliverance, and salvation. A message that only has meaning if the world is condemned already because of sin. Who needs to be saved from drowning if they're standing on the beach? It's only if you're in the deep water you need to be saved. The work of the church is to continue the ministry of Jesus, that there is hope In Jesus Christ alone and that a person doesn't have to remain in the world condemned the kingdom of death the kingdom of darkness which men loved but they can be transferred by the blood of Jesus Christ into the kingdom of life the kingdom of light. Jesus goes on to say very harsh words or John's commentary whichever one you take they're the words of scripture everyone which includes most people everyone practicing evil hates the light if this is true and Jesus did have a tendency to tell the truth should we be surprised if speaking the truth in a culture of death and darkness, initiates passionate backlash. Imagine, and I'm not telling you to do this, I'm asking you to imagine it. So please, again, I'm not giving you a command. I'm asking you to imagine this. Imagine going to a school board meeting, standing up, because you have a few moments, and simply reading Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds, And four footed animals and creeping things. There they show up again. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, Deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. I don't think you'd be invited back for the next meeting. Imagine going to an abortion clinic and simply reading Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. They all were written. The days fashioned for me. When as yet there were none of them. I think you not only would be not invited back, but with current Canadian law, you would be thrown in jail. So if you did these things, you would learn very quickly that neutrality is a myth. Neutrality is a myth. The world and its systems hate the light. Jesus said that those that place place their faith in him are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. It would be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it, Christian, to hide under a bushel? Some of you are finding it easy today. But then, how would the world learn that God loves them even while they were yet his enemies? The Christian has never been asked to walk the easy path. We have rather been commanded to follow Jesus Christ. This brings us to our three practical lessons for this week. Things to ponder about this passage. Number one, the eyes of faith alone can see that visible experiences result from the invisible power of the God who loves us. Hard things are going to happen to you at times through your life. Faith alone can recognize these hard times as a sort of rock tumbler, producing precious, polished stones fit to build a living temple. You're welcome. Number two, the heart of faith joyfully submits to the commands of Christ. Even when physical circumstances say that such obedience may bring trial and persecution. Hard circumstances force us to make choices. For the Christian, the choice will often come down to this. Do we obey the flesh or do we obey the spirit? Do we obey the flesh or do we obey the spirit? Number three and last. The life of faith gives evidence that the spirit who has regenerated us has made us for a life of good work that he has before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this encounter that you had with Nicodemus. It is so rich with truth. It is so applicable to our lives. Father, we want, we desire to be people of faith, to have eyes of faith and a heart of faith and live a life of faith. But we also recognize that this comes with some hard things. And yet, like a mother bringing forth a, a little baby, those hard things are always followed by a reward that's infinitely greater than the hard things we had to suffer. Remind us of this as we walk through these coming days. Those of us that are believers in here are going to be faced sooner or late with a decision. Do we obey the flesh or do we obey the spirit? Would you give us the strength to obey the spirit? Would you give us the desire to walk in righteousness, to joyfully obey the commands of Christ, to love one another, to love you, We ask, Father, for your spirit to empower each one of us this morning. There's In a group this size, of course, there are those in here that have not yet trusted you. I pray that it is by the truth of your word, your message, that they would be moved in their hearts even now to just submit their lives into your loving hands, to trust you and receive eternal life. And for the rest of us, Lord, we go day by day as christians sometimes casually and we just ask that by your spirit you would remind us that every moment is a sacred moment before you that we would even living in these physical bodies present the non-physical truth of the existence of god the love of god the power of god to transform our hearts We thank you for all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.